there's a real significance to someone's final words. When someone is on their deathbed or in their waning hours and it's known to all that this is coming, there's a certain gravity that the moment takes and that when there's an opportunity for the, the person who's close to passing to speak, we're very curious about what's on their mind. There's a significance, there's a, a weight to what they might say in those closing moments of this earthly life, what comes to the forefront of somebody's mind, what weighs heaviest on that person's heart. And so the, the closing words, the final words of a person's life have a real significance. And when we come to the end of Genesis chapter 47, we are seeing Jacob on his deathbed. The story of Jacob has been told uh, for the latter half or so of the book of Genesis. Obviously, a bunch of it is focused on his son Joseph and his brothers. But really, these are the generations of Jacob that we were told in the beginning of chapter 37. And now, when we reach chapter 47 and come to verse 27, we find Jacob nearing the end of his earthly journey. And he has some things to say. And so if final words can reveal what's most important and what's at the forefront of the mind of the dying, it's important for us to ask this question, what is Jacob going to say at the end? What is at the front of Jacob's mind? What weighs most on Jacob's heart? What might we learn indeed? What might we glean from his final words that could instruct and encourage us? Here's the phrase I'll give you, and I'll repeat it a few times throughout the morning, but here's what I think we see in Jacob's final words, which take up two chapters. The anchor of faith is the promises of God. The anchor of faith is the promises of God. And I think you'll see that the promises of God and his confidence in them are on display over and over again in what Jacob has to say. Now the passage here, Lord willing, we're going to get through, we're going to start at chapter 47, verse 27, and then get all the way through chapter 49. That's a little bit ambitious, and if it looks like we're way off time, I'll cut it at some point, but that, that's the hope. And those two chapters, slightly more than two chapters, are bookended by a particular request of Jacob, first to Joseph in a private conversation, and then at the end to all of his sons who are gathered in the same place. And that request is that he would be buried not in the land of Egypt, but in the land of Canaan, where his fathers and uh, indeed their wives and his own wife, Leah, were buried. And so he, the passage begins with Jacob sort of forcing Joseph to swear that he will take his body and bury him in the land of Canaan. And then there's blessing. He speaks blessing over Joseph and his sons, and then he gathers all of his sons together and speaks blessing over them in chapter 49. And then it all concludes with the very same thing, but now a command, he uses the language of command, to all of his sons to bury him in Canaan with his fathers. And so the final sort of resting place of Jacob's body is on the front of his mind, 
And I think even understanding why that is begins to, to flesh this out for us. And so in this bookending request, bury me with my fathers in Canaan, at the front and the back end, and then all of these words of blessing that he pronounces upon his family members, what we see reflected throughout is the anchor of faith is the promises of God. So the first sort of section in these verses, what's happening uh, is that we see Jacob's eyes are on a promised future. Jacob's eyes are on a promised future. Look at verse 20, uh, excuse me, I said 27, it's verse 29. Chapter 47, verse 29, and I'm going to read th just through the end of this chapter for now. So chapter 47, beginning in verse 29. So they've, just for context, they've settled in the land of Goshen, right? So, all of, so Jacob and all of his sons have come to Egypt, and they've settled in the region of Goshen, and, and about 17 years have now passed since they've been there, all right? So the famine is well over, and... Jacob and his family have been fruitful and have been multiplying in the land. Here we are, verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So, 17 years have passed. Jacob is nearing the end. He's apparently aware of it. Apparently everybody is aware of it. And so he thinks it's time. It's time to start gathering my sons and making some arrangements. And so he calls Joseph to himself and he says, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you will carry me to Canaan and, and let me be buried with my fathers. Now that putting the hand under the thigh, first of all, recalls a scene we saw earlier in Genesis in chapter 24, where Abraham on his deathbed kind of or nearing the end of his life sent his servant back to the land of Canaan to find uh, a, a wife for his son Isaac from among his people and he did the same thing there put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will find a wife for my son from among my people and so uh, we're seeing this kind of repeated action so obviously we're hearkened back in our memory to that now, the action itself seems strange to us. We might put our hand on a Bible or raise our right hand to the sky or something like that in swearing an oath. Here they put their hand under the man's thigh, and perhaps that's a euphemism for the loins, that general area. And remember that what the story being told throughout Genesis is of the seed of Abraham. All right, so God promised that a seed of Abraham would begin this, the, the growth of the nation and eventually would bless all the nations of the earth. And so there's a sense in which it's sort of like, swear to me on the seed of Abraham that you will do this. All right, so bearing in mind the, the promises of God and the, the story that we're watching unfold throughout these generations, swear that you will do what I am asking you to do. And so Joseph agrees, he swears, I will do what you say. Don't bury me in Egypt, 
Let me lie with my fathers in Canaan. And then it says, he bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, what's that about? What, what does that mean? He's not dead yet. You might think, oh, he just died, but then there's two more chapters of him talking. So that's not his death scene. What is he bowing over the head of his bed about? You might have a footnote in your Bible about the, the Hebrew word for bed. Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is called the Septuagint, uses the word staff. So he bowed his, bowed his head over his staff. And the book of Hebrews, which itself quotes from the Septuagint frequently, actually takes that up. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, speaking of this very scene, it tells us, uh, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And so... He's bowing over his staff, and we're told in Hebrews that he's bowing in worship. So it's not, you might think maybe he just ran out of energy and he's so frail, he has to lean on something. But the author of Hebrews tells us that he's bowing in worship. There's a, a spirit of reverential, grateful worship to God happening in that moment. So if we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, what Jacob is doing here in Genesis 47:31 is worshiping God. How is he worshiping God? What manner is he worshiping God in? In faith, right? By faith, he worshiped God. What's the content of that faith that leads him to worship God in this moment? That Israel's future is in Canaan, not in Egypt. Because that's what he's just said. Promise me, swear to me, you will not bury me in Egypt, but you'll carry my body to Canaan, the land of promise, and bury me there with my ancestors. And when Joseph swears to do that, Jacob bows in worship. Also, incidentally, perhaps fulfilling that an aspect of one of Joseph's dreams back in chapter 37, where the sun and the stars were bowing down to him. So perhaps this is the first time we've seen Jacob bow before Joseph. And so perhaps this is sort of the final aspect of the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams back in the beginning of this story. But why does Jacob worship? He worships because he's remembering that there's a future for his people, for his family in the land of Canaan. Why does he know that? Because God promised him that. Over and over, he's promised every generation in this family that that would be the case. And so Jacob leans on the promises of God concerning the home, the land for the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, and he bows himself in worship. So Joseph has made a promise to Jacob that he will bury him in Canaan and not in Jacob. And now, or excuse me, not in Egypt. And now Jacob prepares for a blessing, to pronounce blessing upon Joseph and his sons. Before he actually gets to the speaking of blessing, though, there's some, uh, a setup of the scene. So let's look in chapter 48, verses 1 through 7. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. You remember these two sons were born to Joseph and his Egyptian wife? Verse 2, And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. 
And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So, as Jacob is in his waning moments, he summons Joseph. And what he does is to begin to recount to him the promises that God has made to him. This is what's at the front of his mind. I need to tell you. I need to make sure it's clear to you the specific promises that God has made concerning our family and the seed of Abraham. And so he talks about how in, uh, in, in Luz, which is later called Bethel, in fact, he renames it Bethel, uh, as he was leaving Canaan, that God appeared to him and spoke to him. That would have been when Jacob was fleeing home because his brother Esau was trying to kill him. And so he ran away, and just before he left Canaan, God appeared to him at the land of Luz, that, which again comes to be called Bethel. And so he, God restated in that scene to Jacob what he had promised to Abraham and Isaac before him. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So the seed and the growth of that seed into a nation, a company of peoples, and the specific promise of this land, the land of Canaan for the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, are all wrapped up in this promise. And this is what Jacob is thinking about. God promised the land of Canaan for his people. And so he knows things are okay in Egypt, right? The last 17 years in the land of Goshen have been fruitful and prosperous, and Joseph has taken good care of them, and God has blessed them. It's not like they're struggling. They're not starving. They're not in bondage yet. It's been good for them in Goshen, but he knows this is not the home of the people of Israel. This is not the land that God's promised and then he tells us in verse 7, on Jacob's return to Canaan, which was, would have been about 20 years later, Rachel died on the way and he buried her on the road to Bethlehem, within the land of Canaan, but not quite to the place where they would settle. And so he's thinking back on his own journey, and he's remembering God's visitations and God's words of promise, and this is what is at the front of his mind. And then, in a very interesting turn, he claims Joseph's sons as his own. Now, that might sound kind of grabby or greedy or something. Uh, you've got 12 of your own kids. Why do you need two of mine? But in truth, this is an act of blessing and love and, and generosity to Joseph. Because there's two things going on here where he says Manasseh and Ephraim are mine, like Reuben and Simeon are, he says. 
Number one, he elevates their status to sons, because right now they're grandsons of his, they're sons of Joseph. But when he says, they shall be as sons, as my sons are, he elevates them to the status of sons, which puts them in line to receive land. Again, hearkening back to the, the, this, this theme of God's promise of land is all throughout these verses. And so to elevate them to the status of sons is to say they have an inheritance. They will have an allotment in the land that God has promised when the time comes. And so, number one, he elevates their status to sons. And number two, he elevates Joseph, sort of vicariously, to firstborn status, replacing Reuben. Reuben is his actual firstborn, and so he would be in line for the birthright, which was typically a double portion of whatever the inheritance was that the rest of the sons would receive. And so here, by saying your sons will, receive, will each receive a land allotment as an inheritance, he is saying Joseph will receive a double portion of the land. The firstborn would be bequeathed a double portion, and so because Ephraim and Manasseh then each received this allotment of land, Joseph is double blessed and takes the status of the firstborn son. That's confirmed in 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2, which tells us because he, speaking of Reuben, defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. And then goes on to say, the birthright belonged to Joseph. So that's what Jacob is doing here. He is conferring the birthright of the firstborn son onto Joseph. Even though Joseph himself won't be named in the tribes of Israel because of that. So, if you ever wonder, when you're reading the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel that occur in various places throughout the Bible, why you don't see Joseph's name, why isn't Joseph one of the 12 tribes, don't feel bad for him. It's not because he got left out. It's because he has given a double portion of the tribal allotments in his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, the math wizards in the room will realize immediately that that makes 13 rather than 12 the solution to that mystery is that Levi does not receive a land allotment because of his designation, uh, his tribe's designation as servants in the temple. And so as will become clearer in subsequent generations, the Levites will be scattered throughout the, the land and will have cities, I think 48 cities in various places where they live, but they don't themselves receive a tribal allotment of land. Like Levi does not have a land allotment. Their inheritance instead is the tithes of all of the other tribes. So the tribes of Israel all tithe toward the Levite tribe, and that's how they make their living while they serve God in the temple and facilitate the worship of God's people. And so Levi won't be named in the tribal allotments, and Joseph won't be named in the tribal allotments because instead his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are named in the tribal allotments. So the list of the tribes will leave out Levi and Joseph, but include Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. All right, I, I trust you're with me on that. Now, in all those details, don't miss what's on Jacob's mind, right? Verses three and four, God Almighty appeared to me and blessed me and said, and what did he say? He made a promise, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting 
possession. Jacob is preparing his sons and grandsons to receive the blessing that God has promised them for three generations now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now this fourth generation. His faith is anchored in the promises of God. That's why he insists on being buried in Canaan. That's why he claims Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. That's why he's about to pronounce forward-looking blessings on each of them. Because the story doesn't end when Jacob dies. It's just moving on to the next chapter. So he's making sure that all of his sons and grandsons know what comes next, or at least somewhere down the line in the story as it unfolds. So, that's the first scene. Jacob's eyes are on a promised future. And now he begins, excuse me, he reminds his sons of God's promises. And that's, that takes us really through the rest of chapter 49. So let's, let's break this down a little bit, kind of section by section. A note here, there is an obvious prophetic quality to these blessings, not merely warm sentiments, not like, I hope that everything goes great for Reuben, right? That, that's not what these blessings are. God has appeared to Jacob and spoken to him a few times in the past, so it's not altogether surprising that Jacob's blessings upon his sons would be infused with divine revelation, but that indeed seems to be the nature of these blessings. There is a, a future telling, a, a prophetic element to these, uh, these pronounced blessings. So first he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. So this is the scene still where Joseph has come to him, and they've had this private conversation about burying him uh, in, uh, in Canaan, and then he's come to him and brought his two sons. So look in verse 8. Let's read verses 8 through 20 of uh, chapter 48. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. All right, so remember that Manasseh is the oldest, he's the firstborn son, and Ephraim is the, the younger son. And so he is bringing them toward Jacob in such a way that Jacob's right hand would naturally be upon the head of the firstborn, Manasseh, and his left hand would be upon the head of Ephraim, the secondborn, the younger son. So that, because the right hand is equated with strength and honor and power and prestige, that would be the blessing given to the firstborn, right? The birthright. And so he carries his sons to him, obviously strategically and intentionally in this way, so that Jacob's right hand would be on Manasseh's head, and his left hand would be on Ephraim's head. Now, let's look at how this happens. Look at verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. 
And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And then Joseph is going to interrupt. All right, this is all going great. What you're saying is cool, but I don't know if you're aware that you got the kids mixed up. And so he's going to grab his hand and try to make a change. Look at verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So this crisscrossing of the hands was not because Jacob was blind and had no idea what he was doing. This was very intentional. He was blessing the younger with the firstborn blessing, which is, again, a se- we've seen a series of these reversals throughout the book of Genesis where God prefers or chooses the younger rather than the older. And so here he's blessing Ephraim, the younger, as though he's the firstborn. And Joseph doesn't like it, but Jacob keeps on going. I know. I did this on purpose. And he, and he continues. Can I just real quick make a note? I just love the way that Jacob talks about God in these verses where he introduces this blessing. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. What a wonderful, tender way to speak of the kindness that God has shown him after all these years throughout this journey. So he blesses the boys, and then after blessing the boys, he turns to Joseph and says a few words specifically to him. Look in verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your father's. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Where is Jacob's mind? God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. I know things have been pretty good in Egypt, at least after that rough start with, you know, slavery and prison and all that stuff. But this isn't where you belong. This is not where the people of God will will stay, ultimately. God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And he even tells him that he, he acquired a particular piece of land, a mountain slope, possibly referring to land that was gained in the battle against Shechem back in Genesis chapter 34. Not totally sure. But at any rate, he ended up with this, land, this piece of land, and he said, this is what I will give to you specifically and not to your other brothers. But again, he's blessed the sons, and he's reminding Joseph This is not where our story stops. Israel and Egypt is not the end of this journey. God will bring us back to the land of Canaan. Because why? Because he promised that he would. This is what he said that he would give. The anchor of faith is the promises of God over and over again in this scene. So he's blessed Ephraim and Manasseh and blessed Joseph in a way. And now he gathers all of his sons together together. And he's going to bless all of them. 
Verse 1 says this of chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So just another reminder that these blessings have uh, prophetic uh, elements to them. He's telling them what's going to happen. And another note, just interestingly here, uh, the, the text of, of these blessings, about, not quite, but really close to half of it is taken up with Joseph and Judah. His blessings to these two in particular take up a huge amount of space comparatively. So some of the other brothers get a verse or a couple of lines, and Joseph and Judah each get a pretty profusive list of, uh, of, of pronouncements and, and prophecy and blessing, and, uh, which is which is appropriate for what we've seen in the way these chapters have unfolded. Obviously, Joseph has a centerpiece, a center point for it, but Judah kind of becoming an unexpected hero along the way. And we've talked about the difference between chapter 38, Judah, and chapter 44, Judah. So bear that in mind as these blessings unfold. I'm going to read all these verses. I've, I've debated whether to do this. It's a lot. Um, I'm going to read it, and then I just want to point out a few highlights. Okay, so we, we can't talk in detail about every one of these sons and their blessings, uh, so, but, I, but I want you to hear it. So here, verses 1 through 27, we're, I'm going to read this for you, and then we'll talk about a few uh, important highlights. Really, verses 2 through 27. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben. Number one, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. So Reuben is rejected as the firstborn, the preeminent one. Verse five, Simeon and Levi, number two and three, are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now that's referring to that same scene that I mentioned a minute ago about the men of Shechem where the men of Shechem had sort of, or Shechem himself had defiled their sister Dinah. And so Levi and Simeon led this sort of trickery and this rebellion, this revolt against them, and slaughtered all of the men of this city in retaliation. And Jacob chastised them then, saying, you've made me a stench among all the peoples. And so hearkening back to that sort of violent retaliation, uh, Jacob says here, because of that, because your heart is this wrathful revenge, you will be scattered, right? All right, moving on. Where am I at? I lost it. Somebody help me. Verse 8. All right. Judah, number four, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. We'll come back to all that. 
Verse 13, Zebulun, number five. Actually, Issachar is the fifth born and Zebulun is the sixth born. So these two are listed out of order. Not sure why. Zebulun, verse 13, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people, number seven, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Perhaps that's Jacob pausing and just worshiping God for a moment before he continues. And then number eight, verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Number nine, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali, number 10, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph, number 11, is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And then the twelfth and final son, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All right, we've got to talk about Joseph and we've got to talk about Judah. And I can't spend any time on the rest of them. For now, in verses 22 to 26, he blesses Joseph just profusely, just profoundly. The blessings be upon your head, and the blessings from your father, that's him speaking, are greater than the blessings from my parents, right? God is just pouring out blessing and blessing upon you. And then he speaks of his journey. He talks about these bitter attackers and how he survived them. What attackers might he be talking about? Maybe the rest of his brothers, right? Who had risen up against him and he went down into Egypt but then ended up by the hand of God and the kind presence of God with him in this place of rule and authority and, and, a, and a position to bless his people and the nations. And so he speaks of the way that God has strengthened his hand and, and provided for him in the midst of this hardship. And then he calls him at the very end, May they, the blessings, be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And I don't think he means they're primarily set apart by, you know, due to Jacob's preference for Joseph, because we, that's been well told that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, but by the unique and essential role he played in preserving Abraham's family in Egypt and by virtue of his newly minted status as the firstborn. So Joseph has set himself apart from his brothers by the role that God has had him play and by the status he has now attained in the family of Jacob. And so just these rich, profuse, beautiful blessings pronounced upon Joseph. So again, even though he doesn't show up in the tribal lists later, it's not because Joseph got forgotten. Those indeed are expressions of the blessing that God has poured out upon Joseph. 
All right, let's talk about number four. Son number four, Judah, verses 8 to 12. There's a lot to say here. Can't say it all. You'll notice, of course, there are certain things about this that just speak of godly character and leadership qualities that, that Judah has displayed in these recent years. Obviously, early on, that was far from the case. But he's changed. He's been transformed. He's, he's become a righteous man, a courageous man, a selfless leader, one who, who took the lead among his brothers when they were in uh, a dire situation before Pharaoh. He will receive honor among the family. Interestingly, he says here, your brothers will bow before you. So far, we've seen all the brothers, including Judah, bow before Joseph. But now, all the brothers will bow before Judah. And perhaps he's not speaking here of this immediate generation. These 11 guys are going to bow to you. But looking forward, and the families, the tribes that will come from them, the other nations, the other tribes, excuse me, being subservient to Judah in some way, which certainly comes to be the case, as Judah is the, the most prominent uh, of the, the, the tribes among Israel, and indeed, eventually, the last remaining a kingdom once the kingdom is divided so he'll receive honor among the family and within the nation of israel there are images here abounding of royalty which to this point in genesis have only been associated with joseph right joseph has been the one rising to prominence and to a position of rule and people bowing before him and all this now judah has these images applied to him there's comparisons to a lion in the conquering of his enemies there's talk of a scepter, that is the, the ruling staff of a king that shall not depart from Judah. It says, uh, the ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him. That phrase, until tribute comes to him, could be translated, until he comes to whom it belongs, namely the staff. So the, king, the, the ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. So if that's the right way to read this or to translate this, then that's a very clear prophecy concerning a ruler who would come and Judah would hold that ruler, ruler's position and that ruler's staff until the one comes who really is supposed to have it, right? And then he says, to him... Perhaps this one who's coming shall be the obedience of the peoples, that is, the nations. So now we're looking beyond the boundaries of Israel, looking beyond the boundaries of Abraham's family. The nations will give obedience to this one. The ruler to come will preside over a season of unparalleled prosperity. These last few images, which sound a little strange to us about the, the foal and the vine and all this are images of just overflowing wealth and prosperity. So when he says he will bind his foal to the vine, one author I read said that's basically like lighting fires with $100 bills because you're going to lash your, your donkey to it and he's going to eat it. And he's like, no problem, I've got plenty more, right? So like you are so overflowing with wealth and with produce that it's not a big deal if, if your choice vine gets eaten by the donkey because you have so much of it. Same thing where it says he washes his garments in wine. Wine's expensive. Why would you wash your garments in wine? This is like you have so much overflowing 
richness in wine that wine just becomes something that you wash your clothing in instead of water. I mean, it's just, there's just ridiculous, unparalleled prosperity that's pictured in these kind of outlandish images. In other words, the ruler that's to come will preside over unparalleled prosperity for the people. Now, if you as you move forward in the, in the story, Judah will be prominent among the tribes of Israel in their own history, to be sure. He will be honored. His family will be powerful. But this blessing, this prophecy extends far beyond Judah himself and even beyond the family of Jacob. A ruler will come from Judah's line whose reign extends beyond Israel's borders to all the nations. Indeed, the lion-like strength of this ruler foreshadows the great heavenly throne room of Revelation 5, which Tracy read for us earlier. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. A ruler will come from Judah's line who ushers in prosperity and peace beyond the reach of any mere earthly kingdom. And while the wine-washed garments and the vesture dipped in the blood of grapes indicates wealth and prosperity, might it also be an allusion to the white robe of the coming conqueror of Revelation 19, which is dipped in blood as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This coming conqueror is none other than Jesus Christ, the descendant of Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the son of David, who would one day defeat his enemies and establish his, gro his global rule of peace and prosperity forever. Now, this ruler, this Christ, has already come into the world once as a lamb who was slain to atone for the sins of his people. But the lamb who was slain is coming yet again one day as the lion of the tribe of Judah to judge the living and the dead, as we repeat in our creed, the Nicene Creed. And when he comes, you will want to be counted among those who have sought refuge from God's wrath in his atoning death, lest you find yourself on the wrong end of the sword he wields against the wicked. When the story of Joseph began to unfold in Genesis 37, we could scarcely imagine that this would be the future of Judah and his family. That this coming ruler and Messiah and king and savior and deliverer would come from Judah's line. But indeed, that is what the prophecy and the blessing of Jacob upon Judah spell out for us. Well, the last few verses here show us Jacob finishing his journey. It winds down to a close here. Look at verses 28 to 33. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them. Here, we're back to that bookend. And said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, 
in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were, brought, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Just as Jacob had made Joseph swear at the end of chapter 47 to bury him in Canaan, so here he commands his sons to carry his body back to the land of promise and bury him there with his fathers and their wives and his own wife, Leah. And then we're told at the very end, the last phrase here, he was gathered to his people. Now that's not a statement of his burial. We're not talking here about his physical body being in proximity to the, the bodies of his deceased ancestors. Right? He hasn't been buried yet. We'll read about that later. What's being spoken of here in saying he was gathered to his people is the spiritual reunion of the saints of God in the intermediate state between their physical death in this age and their future resurrection at Christ's return. The few and evil years of Jacob's earthly sojourn came to an end, and he was reunited with his departed loved ones, the other recipients of these same promises of God. You will be blessed. You will be a great nation. You will have this land as an eternal possession. You will be the conduit of divine blessing to the nations. And that is how Jacob's story comes to an end. It must be said of Jacob, as the author of Hebrews said, of the other great heroes of faith in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And surely it could be said of us as well that we are strangers and exiles on the earth and that we have not yet received the things promised. You see, we sojourn in the tension between the accomplished work of redemption in Jesus Christ and the consummated reality of his kindly rule. We live in the space between the already and the not yet of Christ's kingdom. We have been purchased, ransomed by the blood of Christ, we have been forgiven our sins, given new life, and dwelt by the Spirit. We have foretaste, glimpses of divine glory in the church and in communion with God. It's true, these are present realities. But we still struggle hard with sin and the flesh. We're still beleaguered by attacks from the devil and broken by the sins of others. We still lament the realities of evil and injustice abounding in our world. This is the tension in which we live in this age as the people of God. How do we keep going? How do we keep believing? Jacob's story tells us, gives us a few exhortations. Fix your eyes on the horizon. In the words of Peter, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus promised us, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember that God in Christ is making all things new and that the battles you're fighting so hard right now will one day be distant memories and you'll be fully 
at peace in Christ's everlasting kingdom. Friends, the anchor of faith is the promises of God. Let's pray together. God, give us this grace, we pray, to anchor.